invite Evan forward to bring us a message from the Word of God. Please be seated. That was a joke, guys. Hey, thanks for uh, having me here today. Uh, we're going to be in James chapter 5, uh, verse 7 through 20. So that's going to be in page 1013 in your pew Bibles, 1013 in your pew Bibles. So if you have your Bibles, let's turn there. And we'll let me read this, these words from the book that we love. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the earth, the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have, been, you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. But above all, my brothers, do not swear, either by heaven, or by earth, or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes, and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church, and let them pray over him anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power in its working. Elijah was a man with nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings him back, whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering, will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. This is God's word. Uh, We have been at liberty in the letter of James. And uh, James is a general letter, meaning that it was meant to be sent around to a bunch of different churches. It's not specifically written to a particular church. Uh, So James is trying to hit a number of churches, and he's really referring, really speaking to the Jewish Christians who are, he says, in dispersion, who are kind of spread out throughout the Roman Empire. And as we have gotten to the last chapter in James, or this last section in James, What I would like for us to pay attention to today is that James calls us to and invites us to be people of patience and prayer as we wait in the overlap of the ages. In the Bible, there's two ages or two time periods. There's the present age, which is the largely evil and under the power of Satan and The Bible, in particular the Old Testament, talks about the age to come, which is a future age where God will reign on earth as he does in heaven. And the world at that time, like you read the end of Isaiah, he'll talk about how the world will be full of justice and peace and love. But as we will see, in Jesus, God has overlapped the two ages. And so James says, be a patient people and be a praying people. 
So look at verses, as we look at what it means to be a patient people, let's look at verses 7 through 8 again. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it, until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. James saying, be patient as you wait for Jesus to return. The Jews at the time of Jesus, they're under Roman oppression. And they believe that when the Messiah came, God would set up his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven, his rule on earth as it is in heaven, and he would destroy the Romans, and he would vindicate the Jewish people and usher in at that point the future age to come. But what happens is Jesus enters the picture and he starts announcing that God's kingdom is here and claims that in him, the age to come has now overlapped with the present age. So we live in this kind of transition point until Jesus' second coming. When the transition to the age to come will be complete and at that time, God will wipe away sin, suffering, sickness, and Satan. And we, his people, will live with him in the new heavens and new earth. But twice, James says, be patient. Be patient for Jesus to come. Be patient for the transition to be completed. That's what the Bible often refers to as the last days. So let me pause for a moment. And oftentimes I get this question. Maybe you don't get this question as much. Or maybe Casey doesn't get this question as much. But I get the question often, Pastor Evan, are we living in the last days? Are we living in the end times? And I usually say something like this. Yes, we are. Absolutely. And we have been for 2,000 years. The New Testament, the last days, the end times started with Jesus. And so maybe it's because, let me just say a couple things about this. And maybe because here this morning... March Madness is on my mind, so I've been thinking about basketball a lot. But let's just roll with me here. The last days are a lot like the final minute of the fourth quarter of a basketball game. The clock says there's one minute left, but it takes a lot longer than that. So sometimes my kids will want to stay up and watch the Sixers with me, and I say, hey guys, it's time to go to bed. And they're like, dad, there's only like one minute left. And I'm like, that could be like 10, 15, 20 minutes. Now, statistically, on average, uh, the last minute of a basketball game lasts about five and a half minutes, but sometimes longer. So all I have to say is that the last day's clock, let's say the last day's clock, says one minute. It might be, it's ticking down, but it takes a while. It could be another 20 seconds, which would be awesome, and we'll find out before I'm maybe even done this thought. Or it might take another 20 years, another 2,000 years. We don't know. And James says, be patient. The clock's ticking down. Be patient. We also, though, need to be careful about falling into chronological and geographical snobbery. Just because something is seemingly bad that's happening in America in the 21st century doesn't mean Jesus is coming back any sooner because of it. Like, I know you might be concerned about the things that are on Netflix. But we've had brothers and sisters for 2,000 years across the world who've been killed for their faith. And all of a sudden, because Netflix seems to have a certain slant, we get upset. And think, oh, Jesus is coming back. 
And he is, absolutely, but the clock is ticking down, and I'm not really sure how long that's going to take. So you might be uneasy about the government, or uneasy about maybe LGBTQ stuff, or weird things happening in the Middle East. And you know who else was? First century Christians. Because all that stuff existed in Rome. They didn't have Netflix or Hulu and all that kind of stuff, but all that stuff was existing in, in the first century in the Roman Empire and more. And James still says, be patient. And lastly, like I said, we don't know when Jesus is coming back. Jesus said, no one knows when he'll return except the Father. So here's just my brief statement about that. If Jesus in his earthly life didn't know when he's going to return, no one in this life who claims they really know when Jesus is going to return really does. My advice, no matter how confident somebody seems about Jesus is going to return on this date at this time, my advice is don't listen to him. Don't. Instead, listen to James. Jesus will return, but be patient. But it's easy for us to get impatient in our patience. So I I love you guys, but uh, when Casey asked me to, let me finish this sentence. She never wants somebody to start with, I love you guys, but. I love you guys, but when Casey asked me to preach this morning, I said, is it okay if I preach the sermon that I preached at Liberty early, earlier in the morning? He, just, he said to me, yes, that's fine. Just make sure you reference Palm Sunday. So here's your Palm Sunday reference. <laughs> <laughs> On Palm Sunday. Think about the impatience in our patience. On Palm Sunday, Jesus is coming into Jerusalem on a donkey, and the Jews praise God as he comes in. Because they think, this is it. The age to come is here. God's going to set up his kingdom, and he's going to wipe out the Romans. Like, Caesar, you better watch out, guy. God's coming for you now. But they misinterpreted Jesus, didn't they? Even Rome misinterprets Jesus, which is really interesting. Think about this. Why does Pilate, why is he so concerned that Jesus is the king of the Jews? He's not like, hey, are you the Messiah so I can put my faith and trust in you? He's like, no, 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 hold a second. We have a king of the Jews. And it works all the way up the ladder. Herod, me, Caesar. So why are you claiming you're the king of the Jews? See, the Jews waited for a long time for the Messiah to come. And they're so eager to welcome Jesus as this conquering king. And there's actually some, uh, what the New Testament is doing is also bringing in pictures of Solomon here. And that's why they're very excited about the son of David. But once they realize that he wasn't coming to kill the Romans, but to die on one of their crosses... That he wasn't coming to bring in his kingdom through the sword, but through the message of the gospel. What happens is they get impatient. And less than a week later, they turn on him and crucify him. And we have to be patient. Otherwise, we might turn on him too. James says there's no supermarket they can go to and buy a remedy for sin, sickness, suffering, and Satan. But like a farmer, you gotta wait. And if we get impatient in our patience, not only will we turn on Jesus, we'll turn on each other too. So James says, be patient with one another. Verse 9, look at verse 9. 
Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. Our tendency in the overlap of the ages isn't to be patient with each other. It's to complain or grumble about each other. And James says, you and I grumble about each other because we think we're the judge. We grumble about the smallest theological differences with other Christians because we think we're on the judge's bench. We grumble about worship styles because we think we're wearing the judge's gown. We grumble about translations of the Bible because we think we hold the judge's gavel. But there's only one judge, and that's Jesus. And the irony James points out here is that if we judge each other in grumbling about each other, we actually judge ourselves. But why do we why do we grumble? Years ago, Amanda, my wife, and I took our kids to Disney World. And we decided we're going to go for two weeks. My wife was teaching at the time, and we, I had the time, and so we just went for two weeks. And the first three or four days when we're there, we're in, now remember, we're in the happiest place on earth. <laughs> and what do my kids do for the first three or four days? They grumble. They complain. That they're not at home with their friends. We're in Disney World. I don't know if I'd emphasize that again. The happiest place on earth. And I can't speak for Amanda. And gentlemen, I won't speak for Amanda. But I grumble too. Because I don't know the exact number. But I paid somewhere around buku bucks to be in Disney World. And my kids weren't being grateful to me for bringing them here. Instead, they were grumbling. See, we expected our kids to be happy, again, in the happiest place on earth. But the reality was, they weren't. See, we grumble and complain when our expectations don't match reality. So let me give you a biblical example. The Israelite people, after the Exodus, expected... Their expectation was to get to the promised land faster and easier than they did. But it took 40 long, hard years. That was the reality. The expectation doesn't match the reality, so what do they do? They grumble. And because they grumble, what does God do? Sends them back to the wilderness. Here's a life example. The reality is that your spouse misses a lot of your hints. But you expected your marriage to be flooded with romance or sexual intimacy at the drop of the hat. And when that doesn't happen, expectation doesn't meet reality, doesn't match reality, what happens? You grumble. But here's some church examples. Sunday worship isn't about you. That's the reality. But you come expecting for Sundays to be about your preferences. And because they don't, that expectation doesn't match reality, you grumble. The reality is that a God that doesn't offend you or challenge you is no God at all. But you expect preaching to never offend you or challenge you and just rubber stamp your life. 
so you grumble. The reality is Orthodox Christians agree on the essential things, but widely differ on the non-essential things. But you expect that everyone will read the Bible the same way as you. And when they don't, you grumble. The reality is not everyone does things the same way you do them. But you expect if they knew what was good for them, they would. But they don't. So you grumble. And listen to me, when you're a grumbler, do you know who you attract? More grumblers. And do you know who you create? More grumblers. You create grumbling kids and grumbling grandkids, grumbling disciples. And you and I, if I fall into that, we have our echo chambers of grumblers and what will happen is we'll eventually get impatient and we will cause division or leave this church to go to another church to grumble there. Like if you don't figure out contentment now, you're not going to figure it out then. Because what we're doing when we do that is we're projecting our expectations on others. We see the reality, but we project our expectations. It should be this way. And that's not fair. It's not fair to project our expectations on God. It's not fair to project our expectations on our spouses or kids or grandkids. It's not fair to expect to project our expectations on people at church or the church itself. And in truth, it's actually prideful and selfish. So James says in verse 10 through 11, he says, As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. So when you feel like you want to grumble because your expectations don't match reality, James says, be grateful. The Lord is compassionate and merciful. Even when reality doesn't match our expectations, we've been shown compassion and mercy from God because of Jesus when we deserve condemnation and wrath because of our sin. Whenever I have trouble being grateful and I want to grumble, I always remember this Ethiopian proverb that says, don't blame God for having created the tiger, but thank him for not giving it wings. Hear that? Don't blame God for what the reality is. Thank him that it's not worse. You've been given too much to grumble. Be grateful. And additionally, my encouragement to you would be to not sweat the small stuff. When you're irritated by something, you want to grumble. Ask yourself, is the thing that irritated me really that big of a deal? Not everything is code red. Not everything is DEFCON 20. So if the thing that irritated you is still irritating you a few days later, it may be legit. 
but you have, according to Jesus, an obligation at that time to go and talk to that person. Not talk to other people about that person, not text the person, not email the person, to go to the person and talk to them. Otherwise, let it go. Don't sweat the small stuff and move on. And then also grow in self-reflection. When something irritates you and you want to grumble, what does the thing that irritated you reveal about you? And that thing, whatever that is, needs to be addressed by God. Some of us, myself included, are easily irritated when we're told what to do by someone in authority. Doesn't matter what it is, doesn't matter what they're asking me or who it is, just because I was being told what to do, I don't want to hear it. Because I have a rebellious heart. And my rebellious heart needs to be addressed. That could be for those young people that are in here. It could be your teachers, professors, your parents. Maybe you have a rebellious heart where your parents ask you to do something. Or your teacher or professor asks you to do something. Or even your boss. And you don't want to do it. It might be because your heart is rebellious. But it's not just kids, right? It's not just young people too. All of us. Many of us may feel that way. Some of us are easily irritated by someone doing something differently than we do it. Why? Because we want to be in control. We want to have to say how things should go. And that needs to be addressed. And so follow, the next thing I would say is follow someone else's example. This is what James gets at. It says it's basically, he's trying to get us to understand, it's often easier to follow than to lead. So James says, do you need some guides on what it looks like to be patient and suffering without turning into a grumbler? Look at the prophets. Look at Isaiah and how he suffered and how he's sown into two. And yet God met him. Look at Jeremiah who was stoned. Look at Stephen who was stoned. Or look at Job who lost everything and God gives him double in the end. For us, maybe we need to look at the saints in church history. Maybe we need to look at our brothers and sisters across the world who who are struggling and enduring without grumbling. And maybe we even need to look within our church walls to say, who here should I follow and be like who suffers, is patient, and endures? And I should be like them. It's easier to follow than to lead. And lastly on this point, be encouraged. When Paul wants his readers... Because the reality of Jesus' second coming is taking longer than what they expected it to take. He writes them in 1 Thessalonians 4, 16-18. He says, the Lord Jesus will descend from heaven. And then he says, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. In ancient Rome, when Caesar would conquer a town or a city, he would wait on his horse outside the city walls. And what he would do is he would force his recently conquered people, which at that point is mostly women and children, to come out of the city and celebrate his arrival And go in the city with him. Think about that. We just have been conquered by Caesar. He's out there. He wants us to come out there. 
and celebrate his coming in to our city, we got to meet him out there. Okay. And what Paul's saying in this picture, what he's trying to paint is a picture that Jesus is Lord and Caesar is not. Jesus is going to be greater than Caesar. Through Jesus' death and resurrection, he's been given authority over heaven and earth. So when Jesus completes the transition to the age to come, this time he won't come on a donkey, but he'll come in glory and power. And Paul's saying Caesar may have been a conqueror of cities and towns, and now he's the lord of a bygone empire. But Jesus is conqueror over death and will show himself as lord of the universe. And when that happens, those who put their faith in Jesus, whether dead or alive at that time, will go outside the walls of the earth, meet Jesus in the clouds, not to go to heaven, but to come to earth, back to earth, to a renewed earth with him. Too many Christians have misunderstood these words, that thinking it's about getting sucked up to heaven. At the beginning of that whole passage, it talks about Jesus descending, not ascending, descending. It's coming down. And we've used those words to scare others. But how does Paul say we should use those words? How, should, how does Paul talk about when we're being patient, we're waiting on Jesus to come back? He says, encourage each other with these words. So be encouraged. When the transition for the age to come is complete, everything that plagues you and our world, the sin that entangles you, the suffering that you're enduring, the sickness that you're going through, and the attacks from Satan, all will be gone forever. And then James says, be patient by being truthful. Verse 12, talking about oaths and swearing. What he's saying is patient people don't need to take oaths or give guarantees to prove they're telling the truth. Instead, they're people of their word, like God is of his. And so the next major section, he says, okay, he says, be patient people, but also be a praying people. He wants us to contend in prayer as we wait for Jesus' return. Mark Sayers, he's an author, podcaster, uh, and he writes his book, Reappearing Church. And he challenges Christians in our time to not be churchgoers, but be remnants. Churchgoers are like cultural Christians who say they believe in Jesus, but Jesus doesn't change their lives. Or they might be like what I call crusty Christians, right? People who say they love Jesus, but Jesus doesn't enliven their hearts in any way. And Mark Sayers says, don't be a churchgoer, be a remnant. Churchgoers are like spectators who watch the final minute of the basketball game, but remnants are the people on the court putting their bodies on the line. Remnants are deeply devoted and faithful. Discipleship is at the core of their being. They're not consumers, but contenders. They take on the lion's share of the ministry in their churches. They operate out of genuine spirit-filled empowerment. And then he says this. He says, in our age of opinion, social media venting, virtue signaling, and image management, remnants choose a different path to pursue with others in the hidden places, the eternal perspective, to crying and contend, to step into the gap. Choosing not punditry, but contention. Instead, their way is prayer. So James says in verse 13 through 15, Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him. 
anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord, and the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. So based on this, we might say, remnants pray to God when things are going well and praise him when, sorry, when they aren't going well and praise him when they are. Churchgoers only pray when things aren't going well. Think about your prayer life. Do you only go to God when things aren't going well? Or do you pray and praise? Remnants embrace community as a blessing and their roles within it. But churchgoers see community as optional or as a curse or only for when it's convenient for them. Churchgoers keep their sickness private. Remnants, if they're sick, get on the phone with the elders and ask the elders to pray over them and anoint them with oil. And the oil is just a symbolic way of marking a a sick person as someone who needs special attention from God. So when we do this at Liberty, the elders gather around and we pray over the person. We mark them with the sign of the cross in oil. It's just our way of saying, God, this person needs your special attention. And while it's not always the case, and Jesus says this in John 9, sometimes, though, James says, the person is sick because of unrepentant sin. Churchgoers who are sick will act like their sin isn't that big of a deal and has nothing to do with this. Let me keep it hidden, put away. All I really want is God to make me physically whole. But remnants are thankful when their elders ask if they have any unrepentant sin because they want to be physically and spiritually whole. So James continues in verse 16. Therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. What he's saying there is like Elijah was a human. He was just a regular guy just like any one of us. And he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again and heaven gave rain and the earth bore its fruit. See, if you're a churchgoer, simply a churchgoer, you believe dealing with sickness and sin in the church is only the job for the elders and pastors. But remnants, what remnants do is they actually acknowledge the authority of elders and pastors and submit to it, but they see sickness and sin as everyone's problem, so they contend for each other in prayer. They know that they're, if they're in a right relationship with God through Jesus, which that's what it means to be righteous, that God can use their prayers for healing and forgiveness. And you might think, James says, you might think, I'm only human. How could I possibly do this? I'm not some superstar Christian. And James says, but so is Elijah. And God used him and used his prayers. And then James concludes like this. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Churchgoers see someone who wanders from the faith and thinks it's not their place to say anything. Churchgoers live and let live. But remnants out of love say, I love that brother or sister in the Lord. I'm going to contend for them and I'm going to go after them and I'm going to seek to restore them. Paul says, do it gently. Galatians 6 says, do it gently, but do it. Try to bring them back to the church body. You're not forcing them, right? You're not like tying them up 
right? And then the next week, like, don't take this the wrong way. And then next week for Easter, there's like a bunch of people tied up in ropes up here. Like, that's not what we're talking about. He's saying, gently go and tell them. See, remnants stand in the overlap of the ages for each other because they know that Jesus stood in the gap for them. And when we're remnants, when we put our bodies on the line, discipleship's at our core, and we contend in prayer, we're patient in our suffering. We don't grumble, but we're grateful. We run to the elders and to each other for prayer. We pray earnestly for healing. And if sin is plaguing us, we confess it to others. And if we're sinned against, we don't hold grudges. Churchgoers hold grudges, but remnants are quick to seek forgiveness and quick to forgive others. Remnants love others because Christ loved them first. So my challenge to you is to stand strong in the overlap of the ages. Be patient. Jesus is coming back. But be patient with Jesus. Don't turn on him and don't turn on each other. Be grateful. And let's be remnants who love each other and who contend in prayer for each other. Let's pray. Father, we, your people, come before you and admit that we are often not patient and we're not people of prayer. We're often better at grumbling than being grateful, and we're often better churchgoers than we are remnants, and we're sorry. But we do thank you for Jesus who stood in the gap for us, who stood in our place, who who took our sins upon himself and died for their consequences. And so free us by your spirit to be patient people and to contend for each other in prayer. Lord, for those who are struggling with sin, who are suffering, who have sickness and who are being attacked by Satan, we ask that you would comfort their hearts they would know your love and that you would strengthen them and all of us to stand strong in the overlap of the ages and we praise you we thank you for Jesus and it's in his name we pray who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit now and forever Amen